Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everyone, to the ninth episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, give you everything you need to know that's going on in the financial markets the past week um, and uh, other strategies uh, in the financial planning world. So um, this week, we're going to do things a little differently since Matt and I will both be traveling later in the week. So we're recording this podcast on Tuesday, August 20th. So um, doing things a little different. And then also we had some requests uh, to dive a little deeper into explaining these indices that we discuss at the beginning of each podcast. Um, so today we'll walk through performance, talk about um, a couple articles, tweets, and research from the week, and then we'll come back to the indices for a more in-depth discussion on that. But as always, we'll take the first couple minutes just to uh, discuss performance. So... The S&P 500 is down 1.9% for the month of August and up 16.63% for the year. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrials are down 2.43% for the month and up 13.85% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite down 2.11% for the month and up 20.61% for the year. Uh, the IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 is down 4.11% for the month and up 12.82%. Uh, the International Index All World XUS is down 4.38% for the month and up now only 6.17% for the year. So International continues to be a significant underperformer. Um, the three-month Treasury bill uh, currently sits at 1.94%, the two-year treasury, treasury yield at 1.53%, and the 10-year Treasury um, is at 1.6%. So um, not a whole lot of change from last week, Matt, just because we recorded last Thursday and now it's Tuesday. Um, but you know, a couple interesting articles and stuff that caught our eyes this week that we can kind of discuss. Yeah, I mean, I'll just throw it out there. I mean, not, not much has changed in what the market's focused on. It's got tunnel vision on the Federal Reserve. Um, there's a meeting of uh, Fed presidents at an offsite in Jackson Hole later this week. Uh, market's going to be focused on how they kind of uh, uh, Fed speak, we call it. Mm -hmm. But uh, next Fed meeting, middle of September, um, seems to be the main focus on the market. Okay. Um, so with that uh, being said, not much has changed since last Thursday, so we'll just move right into um, tweets research uh, from the week that we found interesting. So um, Matt, you want to get yeah. started? Yeah, Mark, a couple things that caught my eye. So the first thing was U.S. new passenger vehicle registrations, right? So this is from August 18th. The source was tradingeconomics.com and the U U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, Mark. And here's the summary. New car registrations have trailed down over the past year despite the strong consumer. And the data on this chart, Mark, goes back to 1976, okay? And as you can imagine, the last time it really had a drawdown was 2008, and um, just to kind of paraphrase what I'm seeing on the chart, uh, have we dipped as low as 2008? No, but noticeably lower 
uh, over the last couple of years with new car registrations. Just an interesting data point. Yeah, and do you think that that um, kind of is was factored in, you know, because up until we just cut rates, rates were rising. So do you think it had something to do with, you know, 10 to 11 months ago that we were rising rate environment and, you know, people shied away from taking out new loans and financing car purchases or what do you think? I think think that's part of it. I think also with uh, cars being more fuel efficient, I think people are holding cars longer in this environment, you know, looking at like um, some anecdotal evidence such as used car prices. They seem to be kind of holding up uh, pretty well right now, which tells me that people, I think, are being smarter about car purchases in general. Yeah, and that kind of makes me think of a point that, um, you know, we've talked several times, not on the podcast, but just me and you about how we believe that semiconductors um, is moving towards not being as cyclical as it used to be, just given the way big data and AI and technology is going. Yep. Almost maybe the same thing for um, for cars, like you mentioned with um, you know um, ele- or electric cars and, and that type of thing. That people are holding on the cars longer, and they're not needing to go out and buy a new car every five, six, seven years. Yeah, exactly. So I just, I just found it interesting. Yeah, you know, given the backdrop of the strong consumer, and then the uh, other piece I saw, um, it's uh, kind of titled in my view, "High Dividend Yield Stocks Trade at Their Lowest Valuation in Forty Years." So this uh, piece, Mark, is from August 15th. It was from CompuStat and Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. So here's kind of my paraphrase of this chart that I saw. Value stocks are cheap, quote unquote, compared to growth names. I'll explain that in a second. Has not been this extreme since 2000 when the tech bubble occurred. In the following two years, so 01 and 02, value stocks significantly outperformed growth names. The recent trend doesn't surprise me, though, since this trend um, tends to happen in low inflation, low interest rate environments when investors are kind of seeking a higher return, Mm -hmm. right? And I think uh, for listeners, I think, Mark, in in my opinion, the best way to explain what's a value. Uh, That was going to be my next question. (laughs) What's a value stock and and what's a growth stock? This is a very kind of loose uh, explanation, okay? So in, in, in my opinion, if the company is growing earnings per share at less than 10%, it's a value stock. Okay. If it's growing uh, earnings per share at more than 10% a year, the market kind of throws it into the, the growth spot, right? And so why is this important to kind of highlight? Growth has been in vogue the past couple of years. And you can see it in our underlying names that we've owned for clients behind the scenes last three years, right? Yeah. So I I show this chart because the uh, valuation difference between, you know, um, these value stocks and these growth stocks has reached a pretty extreme point. But given the backdrop of interest rates and bonds... You're not surprised, are you? No, not at all. Not at all. And yeah, obviously, this has continued for quite some time, um, you know, since we climbed our way out of the recession. It seems like that growth has been um, more popular than value. And yeah, it is at a, an extreme level right now. Um, but, you know, if we're, can we continue to lower interest rates over the next year, I wouldn't be surprised if growth continued to outperform. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, we know value will come back. It's it, right. It'll be right? a reversion to the mean. It's just, 
win. Right? If we had the crystal ball, we wouldn't be sitting here right now that's discussing right. this, right? So the thing that's like uh, I also think could be useful for our listeners, Mark, is those with 401ks because they get their 401k statement and a lot of the investment options will say XYZ large cap growth option, XYZ large cap value option. And if you, as a listener, take your 401k statement, go to that back page, look at all the available investment options, and you're going to see the word value in some of those names, you're going to see the word growth in some of those names, then look at the recent returns, and you're going to see exactly what we're talking about. Right, right. Now that's a good way to put it. Um, so my next note came um, from... Uh, Blair Duquesne, um, and given the recent market volatility, I thought this was just a good piece just to discuss really quick. Um, so she had a nice blog article um, that was called Sell-Offs, Trade, War- Trade Wars, and Yield Curve Inversions. Oh my. And this was on her blog um, called The Bell Curve on August 16th. I already love the title. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, so, and she makes... She makes um, a point about sticking to your plan like Matt and I have discussed several, several times on the podcast. So I just thought it was fitting to bring this up again, given the recent volatility swings that we've had the past couple weeks in the markets. Love it. So Blair says, "You you might not like what I have to say, but sometimes the medicine doesn't taste good, i.e. last week. If you have a real financial plan and your investment strategy is thoughtfully aligned with that plan, you should do nothing. If the news makes you nervous or puts you in a down mood, turn it off for a minute. I don't know if the next bear market starts this week, next month, next year, or the next decade, but I know it's coming. Any financial plan worth the paper it's printed on models the impact of regular periodic market declines. They are expected, and bear markets are a requirement for long-term investors looking to earn a market return. I mean, I, I don't know if you could put it any better than that. Love it. So obviously, uh, you know, going back to our point, stick to your financial plan and realize that we're going to have more bear markets in the next 50 years. Yes, and I think part of the investment psyche, Mark, is because of how bad 07 and 08 and the first quarter of 09 were, the perception from a lot of investors is that's what a bear market looks like. Right. Where that is more of an extreme Example. Yeah. So in 08, the um, S&P index was down about 35, 36% in that calendar year, right? That is not a normal uh, bear market calendar return. Yeah. You know, to have a definition of a bear market from the absolute high water mark to the lowest point has to be at least a correction of 20%. Right. And then we got to 20% in uh, we got, fall, right? We got to 20% in the NAS and the Dow, Okay, and we got within six or seven basis points of yep. the correction in the S&P. Right, yeah. So some could argue that we had a bear market on some of the indices in the fall, but um, but then two months later, we continued to make new highs. Absolutely. The other so. thing I'll throw out there is this. Um, some of these uh, listeners might not remember, but... Just about four years ago, we had a pretty um, quick correction in that year, and it was almost the definition of a bear market as well, yeah. but we just didn't touch it. Mm-hmm. And we had a V-shaped recovery, like you were kind of hinting how Q1 was, where we came back really quick this year. But I think this is a great blog piece that, that you picked out, and I think it's 
I think it's very noteworthy given the environment. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's important to note too, just about what you said, Matt, about, you know, not all bear markets or not all recessions are going to look like 07, 08. Um, So, but when you say recession or bear market, that's exactly what people think of because that was the most recent one. And And especially, especially Mark with our almost retirees or our newly retirees, because what do they always say to us when we talk to them? I'm concerned about another 07, 08, right. right when I start taking income. Yeah. Right? Yep. We hear it all the time. Yeah. And obviously, which is, you know, expected that Absolutely. people are going to be I concerned mean, I, about that. We understand that. The, the, the psychology behind it. Right. But if you already have your financial plan in play, then you are, you're accounting for that. Yeah. Yeah. And a good manager you trust. Right. Right. Um, so the last piece that I wanted to kind of talk about that I just told Matt before we started recording, I just listen to this podcast this morning. Uh, it's called Animal Spirits by uh, Ben Carlson and Mike, Michael Batnick from um, Ritholtz Wealth Management. I just thought this was an interesting note. Um, some of you might have heard that Amazon uh, recently began partnering or is going to begin partnering with Realty.com. So the way it works is that if you're in the market to sell your home, you can fill out a questionnaire or some sort of list of questions on Amazon and they help you find an agent to sell your house to. So whether someone's associated with Coldwell or any of the other uh, big companies, uh, you can sell your house to the agent and then if the deal goes through, the seller gets a $5,000 credit to Amazon. Significant. I thought that's pretty interesting. So obviously it's gonna get people in the door to Amazon, but that's a pretty big deal when you're buying a new house and you need to buy furniture and other things for the house. Absolutely. Um, you know, closing costs it can go to. So that's a pretty good chunk of change for most people um, in transacting house deals. What's going to be interesting as you continue to have companies like Amazon that disrupt, you know, historically pretty closed industries, it's just interesting. Yeah, that was another thing on the podcast they talked about. They posed the quick, forget who posed the question to who, but they said, can you see any industry Amazon not going into and not being successful? And I think Michael joked around and said the sandwich industry or something like that. But um, you already see that they're making their push into healthcare. Yep. Uh, they're um, developing their own infrastructure for their own transportation and all that, um, all the way from planes to, to trucks to um, cargo ships. Yep. Um, so it's pretty interesting what they've what they've been able to do. Um, so just an interesting side note that I thought that no, it's good. People Glad could, you brought it up. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, um, we had a question from Jessica, who's a listener, and she would like us to explain um, the indexes that we are discussing at the beginning. So she asks, what are they and what do they mean? So I'll just start, Matt, I guess, by just giving a, a basic definition where anyone could find on Google if they were to Google it. Sure. Um, and then you can kind we'll of add some flavor. jump in. Yeah. yeah. So um, the S&P 500 is a stock market index that measures the stock performance of 500 large companies listed on stock exchanges in the United States. So it's probably the most commonly followed equity index. Um, and a majority of people think this is the index that best represents the U.S. stock market, in my opinion. Um, So I think that it's important to note that the S&P 500 contains multinational companies as well. So it's not just companies that are transacting business in the U.S. So it does have some international flavor to it. 
Um, it's a market cap weighted index. So um, the market cap of a stock is simply derived by multiplying a stock's price by its shares outstanding. So if a stock has a price of $100 per share and it has 500,000 shares outstanding, its market capitalization is 50 million, right? So the larger the market capitalization, the more heavily weighted that stock is in the S&P 500 index. At least that's the theory, yes. right, Matt? Yep. Um, so it's used heavily as a benchmark, as a performance benchmark um, for outperformance or underperformance of investors and investment managers. So that's the common benchmark that people say, hey, are you outperforming or underperforming the S&P this year over three years or five years or 10 years? Yeah, if you're a pure stock uh, manager. Yeah. yeah. So with that kind of being said, what else do you have to add to that? So here's my flavor to that. I'll say this. I think the perception by listeners is that markets a basket of 500 names and they're equally weighted. That seems to be a lot of the feedback that I get. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm going to just kind of throw this out there. The top 10 names in the index, okay? I'm just going to throw out the names. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Berkshire, Google, Johnson & Johnson, JP Morgan Chase, Visa, and Procter & Gamble. Those are the top 10 names. The thing that people gotta recognize is really the performance is driven by these higher market capitalization names. And I would say it applies to what I would call the 80-20 rule. And you know that is 20% of these names are going to drive 80% of the performance just yeah. because their their weighting is so much in the index. Right. 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 So I think you just got to realize that going into it that it's it's slant is not just large caps but mega caps. Right. So one could make the argument that it isn't or at least in today's world it isn't that great of a representation of the overall US uh, publicly traded companies just because it's so heavily weighted in that top 10. Yeah, I mean, I think we could even go through an exercise and I could even make an argument that it's more concentrated than people let on. I yeah. mean, that would be a whole different conversation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think um, um, the reason, once again, that we quote it and we throw out that number is because it is such a popular benchmark reference in our industry. Yeah. And so I think that's that's the reason why we utilize it so much is that that's kind of the commonly understood stock, 100% stock comparison. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. Um, so, and we can go, you know, we can talk about this for another 30 minutes, but just know that, you know, it's probably the most commonly followed, followed stock index um, comprised of 500 stocks. Um, and, you know, it's just used as, you know, the most popular benchmark uh, to compare performance to. So when you hear people say the market is up 5% or the market's down 3%, generally they're either referring to the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones uh, industrial average. So that's kind of next on our list to tackle. So the Dow um, is an index that tracks 30 large publicly owned companies. So the Dow was originally designed to serve as like a proxy for the broader U.S. economy. Yeah, I mean, when I first started in the industry, it was still extremely popular. Yeah. Uh, as, a, as more than the S&P, I would argue, um, in 99, it was very much um, used as, a, as like one of the go-to benchmarks. Yeah, and initially when this, when this index was started, there were only 12 companies, um, and they were almost pretty much all industrial in nature because at that time, the, the economy was 
driven by uh, industrials. Um, So, you know, back then, a lot of these companies were in industrials, so railroads, um, cotton, gas, sugar, um, tobacco, and oil. And obviously, we've come a long way that we're not as dependent on those things anymore as, as a broader economy. Um, so obviously, this index has involved, evolved over time to represent the U.S. economy, um, and it will continue to change over time. So um, it differs from the S&P 500 in that, obviously, it is a smaller, more concentrated index uh, as opposed to the 500 companies. It only has 30 currently, uh, but is also price-weighted and not market cap-weighted. So stocks with higher share prices are given a greater weight in the index. Yes. So let me kind of approve that point. So the top holdings, top 10 weightings in the index – Boeing is about eight and a half percent. This is just rough. United Health Group is six and a half. McDonald's is almost six. Home Depot, a little bit over five. Apple, a little bit over five. Um, Goldman Sachs, five. Visa, four and a half ish. 3M Company, a little bit over four percent. Travelers, a little bit shy of four percent. And Microsoft, about three and a half percent. So the top 10 of the Dow 30 make up 53% of the index. Mm. So if you have a low-priced stock, doesn't matter what their market cap is, and it's a part of the index, it takes a lot more for that stock to move a dollar, a $20 stock to move a dollar, than it does Boeing at 350 ish Wow, yeah. Right? That's... So this index, in my view, is skewed, concentrated, and I'm just going to throw it out there. The reason we still use it is because the index base is such a large number to sensationalize moves in the market. It sometimes it's boring to say stocks are surging 2%. It's more sensational, Mark, to say stocks are surging 850 points. Yeah. <laughs> right? right, right. So to me, the media grabs on the Dow because of, of the sensationalism of using in my view, inappropriately, the word surge mm-hmm. and plunge because they accompany it with the percentage, uh, the, the point move rather than the percentage. percentage move. Yeah. There you yeah, go. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we see that all the time. Feels like almost every week, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the last company to be taken out of the Dow was GE. And obviously, uh, the people that, that make these decisions felt that. GE was no longer a strong representation of the economy. Yep, it was right. that on top of the fact their share price got so low, really didn't do anything for the uh, benchmark anymore. Yeah, yeah. So the next uh, major index that we talk about is the NASDAQ Composite. So the NASDAQ Composite is a stock market index um, of stocks and other securities, um, American depository receipts, um, limited partnerships and and some other things. So it's not just purely uh, common stock, but it's listed on the NASDAQ stock market. So the composition of the NASDAQ is heavily weighted towards information technology companies. So when people talk about, you know, tech is up 5% for uh, the month or, you know, tech's down a half a percent for the day, they're usually, the the media is referring to the the NASDAQ composite index. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very... Um, technology heavy, very biotechnology heavy. Um, they even have an emphasis on some financials. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just fintech. 
it's a lot different makeup, Mark, as you know, than the S&P. I was going to do, say SPY, uh, but the S&P and the Dow. Yeah. Right? And then there's also a um, a ETF, or people can call it index if they want, um, that tracks, uh, it's called the NASDAQ 100, which is, uh, the, I think, the largest 100 companies in the NASDAQ. And Correct. That, that makes up, I think, somewhere close to 50 or 60%, maybe, don't quote me on those, of the the total NASDAQ composites return. Oh, too. yeah. I mean, I, I think it would be, doesn't surprise me. Sounds about right. That yeah. It would be that heavy. So it's just a common theme of these larger companies, um, you know, drive more of the return um, than, you know, some of the companies that aren't as big. That's right. And so I'm um, just going to throw this out there, you know, for active managers like us, Mark, this does provide opportunities when the market goes up very quickly or goes down very quickly because it doesn't discriminate when people are trading these indexes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there could be names that have nothing to do with the reason why the market's selling off, and that's what gives opportunities to people like to, us. Yeah, yep. Just to throw it out there. Um, next is the IWM ETF. So this tracks the uh, Russell 2000's index fund. Um, so the IWM is an exchange-traded fund of U.S. stocks that like I just said, tracks the Russell 2000 index. So the IWM is used by investors to gain access to the small capitalization segment of U.S. stocks. Um, So stocks that either have a lower share price, a lower number of shares outstanding, or a combination of the two. So most ETFs like this one are designed to track an index. And in this case, um, obviously the IWM is tracking the Russell 2000. Um, so these smaller cap companies are primarily, I think, map based in the U.S. and don't have as much international exposure as some multinationals and the S and P 500. Agreed. Um, and it tends to be what we call a leading indicator um, in terms of which way the market's going to go. So f- pretty much this whole year, the IWM has pretty much gone nowhere. Yep. Um, it seems like just obviously in you know the first couple of months of the year we had it joined in the V-shaped recovery, but from February Marches it really just has chopped around and hasn't done much. Yeah, I mean to kind of throw that out there, the fact that uh, on average small size companies tend to be less dependent on international trade, more domestic base. You know they tended to historically avoided a lot of the say U.S. China trade drama. So one would think with the lower corporate taxes and the fact they tend to be based on a good, strong U.S. economy right now, you would think the small caps would be performing a little bit better. Just a general statement. Yeah, you would. And I think it just points to still the indecision of investors of which side of the coin they want to get on, right? Yep. I'll throw that out there. And the other thing I'll say is with rates coming down, um, it's a lot more, um, say, comforting for a novice investor to pick, say, one of those Dow 30 names or one of those top 20 SPY names that they know, mm-hmm. right, that they might even be a customer of, rather than if you pull up the top 10 or top 20 holdings of the small cap index, they might be so, lucky to know three. Right, okay. right, yep. Um, then the last one I wanted to just touch on today is the MSCI All World X US Index. So the MSCI World X USA Index captures um, large and mid cap representation across 22 of the 23 developed markets. 
um, excluding the United States, obviously. So the index um, attempts to cover approximately, from what I've read, Matt, 85% of the market capitalization in each country. Okay. So this kind of just gives us an idea of how stocks are doing around the world, um, minus obviously U.S. stocks. And I think it's important that you you discuss this because, you know, for me, with, say, concerns about global growth, this is definitely a benchmark or an index that can be referenced. Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, if you pull up um, the MSCI All World Index on a chart, I mean, it is underperformed the U.S. markets for a long time for a decade. That just goes to show you that the the shining light economically around the world has been the strength of the U.S. consumer. Yeah, yeah. So um, we just use this as you know just to give everyone a flavor of how uh, companies are doing um, overseas and in these major uh, countries. Um, and I think you know people who have four hundred one ks. There's always international um, mutual funds or ETFs that you can choose from. And I think if you go into those and look at the performance differences between say an S&P 500 index fund and a um, you know developed markets international fund oh, it'll be stark it'll, it'll be, be a huge difference oh, yeah. and obviously right at some point we'll have a reversion to the mean where international is going to outperform US stocks but again we don't know when that's going to be uh, kind of like Blair said it could be in a month it could be in a year it could be in 10 years yep. we just and don't you know overlay that. all say uh, currency concerns because we've had such a strong dollar you know, I think staying overweight U.S., generally speaking, compared to international makes me more comfortable, but that's just my two cents. Yeah, for sure. And I'm not against having a diversified portfolio, but I mean, until we see signs of the underperformance of international changing, I'm just not comfortable putting a large portion of someone's portfolio into international names right now. So, um, so that kind of wraps up that, Jessica. I hope we answered your questions. And if we didn't, please let us know so we can come back to this topic because I'm sure that you're not the only person um, who wanted to hear about this. So uh, thank you for that question. So before we sign off, anything else on your end you wanted to mention before uh, we wrap this up, Matt? Nope. Nope. Looking forward to next week. It's, uh, you know, we're in between earnings season. Um, so that doesn't uh, start back up till the middle of October for Q3. Yep. So you know we're in a period now where um, in our firm we're doing a ton of research, we're doing some on-site visits, and um, you know it's just a time for us to kind of catch up after earnings season. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So with that, I'll uh, we'll wrap it up here for the ninth episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. So um, have a wonderful week, and we will be back with you on our normal schedule uh, next Thursday. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. 
and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.